Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the second chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 2. We're going to read this morning verses 1 through 3. Romans 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Wow, that's an interesting little paragraph there, coming after the list of vices that we looked at last week. And at first glance, at least the beginning of that passage may sound vaguely familiar to you, maybe even redundant. It opens, therefore, you have no excuse. If you remember, back in chapter 1, Paul explained how mankind has suppressed the truth about God, that truth that God is revealed in nature, and has refused to acknowledge God as God. And then in verse 20 of chapter 1, because of all of that, Paul concludes, so they are without excuse. So here he brings back that statement. And I don't believe here that Paul is being redundant, as we're going to see but even if, even if he was, this is a good point to be reminded of, and that is that we are indeed without excuse. So this rep, uh, repetition of that without excuse, I think, dramatizes the truth that we as people, we as human beings, seem able never to fully admit our wrongdoing. We just don't want to do that. And we never tire of making excuses for our bad behavior. So we never want to admit that we're really wrong, and we constantly make excuses for the things that we do. And so Paul here needs to remind us, you are without excuse. Maybe that's why Romans 2 was written, because of our tendencies to make excuses. I mean, Paul has already shown us that the human race has turned away from God in order to pursue their own interests, and that horrible things have come upon us because of that. All of mankind has become part of the rebellion. In fact, later on in chapter 3, Paul's going to conclude this by saying, as it is written, this is verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And none of us want to admit that. So, instead of acknowledging what Paul said about humans is true, most of us will make excuses and we'll say things like, well, that description in Romans applied to other people. Maybe very debased individuals, depraved people. But it's certainly not true of me. It's certainly not true of us. 
I mean, we know better than that, we'll say. And we act better, too. And while maybe, maybe you wouldn't say it out loud, how many think that when you heard that list last week of 21 vices just read right after one, right after the other, how many of you thought, that's not me? And I think here in Romans chapter 2, Paul is going to disabuse us of these erroneous ideas that it does not apply to us. So who thinks like this? Who is Paul talking about? To whom is Paul speaking when he says in verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Who is he talking to? Well, most scholars believe that Paul here is thinking of Jews, even though he doesn't mention them as Jews until much later in the chapter. Because Paul understood, and so do these scholars, that the propensity to judge the Gentiles for their religious perversity or moral perversity was particularly characteristic of the Jewish people. Verse 4 also refers to this person as a participant in the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. And if you look at the history of the biblical narrative, it's easy to see how that could apply to the Jewish people. They have a rich history of God being extremely patient with them and kind. And so perhaps that applies more to the Jews than it would to the Gentiles. The argument Paul is making here really is that special privilege or advantage does not exempt us from the judgment of God. And that idea, I think you could say, also fits the Jewish people. They were the people of God. God chose them. So, as I mentioned, Paul makes clear in verse 17 that he's talking about the Jews then... But there's a lot of debate about whether every verse leading up to that is is talking about the Jewish people or not. And I think it's important for us to realize that even if he is, the principle that we're going to talk about applies to all moralists, including professing Christians, many of whom think they are exempt from God's judgment because they haven't sunk into the moral pagan pit that we described last week. So, if Paul is thinking of Jews in the first 16 verses, it's really not their nationality or their ethnicity that's at play here, but rather it's a different issue. If he is referring to them, he's thinking of them in regard to their moral superiority. That attitude that they would have of being morally superior to the pagans. And I don't think we're exempt from that same tendency, even as Gentiles. Again, when you heard that list last week, 21 things, did you ever think, oh, that's, I mean, that's what the weavers are dealing with in the jungles of New Guinea, or that's what you run into with unreached people groups, or uh, avowed pagans? atheists, agnostics, whatever the case may be, but that could never apply to me. I'm a, I'm a Christian. I don't do those things. 
So Paul has described here the human race as being under the wrath of God. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's how we kind of started out this section on the depravity of man. And he's shown the depths to which our rebellion against God has gone. And he really hasn't minced words. Let me read this description to you again. Starting in chapter 1, verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And you must understand that this is not the official exhaustive list of things Christians should not do. This is a representative list. and There are many, many other things perhaps that you could even add personally to a list like this. But as we've talked about, especially last week when we studied this, this is a terrible denunciation of the human race. And it's at this point that people often react with the idea that this does not apply to me. It does not fit me. This is not my problem. I'm not like this. So if you're Paul, and you're writing this under, of course, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there are several objections you could make here to someone with that attitude. He could have pointed out that the question is not whether you've done this particular list of things or not, but rather the issue is whether the person measures up to the perfect standard of God's holiness. As you know, God, being perfectly holy, cannot be satisfied with anything less than that. He cannot tolerate the presence of sin. So that's a very important point, and Paul is quite capable of making it, that we all fall short of this divine standard of God. And so therefore, all of us are deserving of judgment, even if you did not partake in any of the vices in that group, in that group we read. But that's not the way Paul answers it. He doesn't let us off the hook by acknowledging, maybe even reluctantly, that we might be innocent of some of the things on that list, but nevertheless we fall short of God's righteous and higher standard. But instead of doing that, he argues that the objector is guilty of these very things. Perhaps even more guilty than the pagans who practice them are. I mean, we have, in fact, here a moral person because they're passing judgment on people. They're saying, you've done these morally reprehensible things and I have not. So we're talking about a person at least who has a moral conscience. But this doesn't mean that they're innocent of what they see and condemn in others. On the contrary, Paul says they're guilty of the same things says this in verse 1, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So Paul here is not really appealing to um, God's perfect standards, 
although he has every right to do so, but rather he's appealing to whatever standard you want to put out there. You're guilty of the same thing they're guilty of. So I started thinking through that and did some reading and found some very interesting things for us to consider. So I might ask you if, and please don't raise your hands or nod your head or in any way acknowledge that you've done this, but if you're one of the people who said, that doesn't apply to me, I'm not like them. What, by what standard do you measure yourself? By what standard do you look at yourself and then are still able to condemn the sin in others? I mean, if you're going to claim that the depravity of man that Paul has just outlined doesn't apply to you, on what basis are you going to appeal? I mean, you might tell me that you're better than the people described in the last part of Romans 1. And my question is, on what basis? I mean, do I need to call your mom? I would used to suggest that. I'm not so sure I would suggest that anymore. What are you using as the basis for your claim that you are more moral? Why do we feel morally superior and just dismiss a list like we read last night and the list we read just a moment ago? So I'm going to take us through some possibilities. Maybe these are things you consider when you evaluate yourself and come to the conclusion that I'm not like them. We'll start with perhaps the most widely accepted code of morality that exists in the world today, and that is the Ten Commandments. I mean, the Ten Commandments um, have even become the basis for some criminal law and even uh, civil law. You can find these in Exodus chapter 20. So you might say, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Paul's condemnation of the people in Romans 1 might have been proper in that far-off heathen country, but it does not apply to us. We have the Ten Commandments. We don't do those things that we saw in chapter 1. So I would say, don't we? Don't you? The fifth commandment says that we are to honor our father and our mother. Paul points this out on the list. In that list of these terrible vices, he inserts in there disobedient to parents, remember? So have you never dishonored your parents? Have you never spoken to them in a dishonoring way or acted in a dishonoring way? Have you always been properly thankful and respectful and obedient to them? What about the sixth commandment? That forbids murder. Paul also includes that on his list, if you remember. But surely we're safe here. Surely this is not a room full of murderers. But have you forgotten that God looks on the heart? And he judges based on things like our thoughts and our wishes and our attitudes as well as our actions. Have you never been angry enough with someone to wish that person dead? Maybe you should review Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, 
where he said that even speaking a defamatory word is sufficient to incur God's wrath for breaking this commandment. So that's the sixth one. Well, the seventh commandment forbids adultery. And we talked about the sexual perversion that went on a few weeks ago. But here, Jesus again goes to the heart, equating lust with the physical act in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Have you never stolen anything? Ever shaded the figures on your income tax? Ever borrowed something and didn't give it back? Even when you remembered that you borrowed it? Have you never lied? Misrepresented the truth? And what about the other commandments that we didn't mention? Well, we're not going to go through the whole list, but we could. If you say, my standard of morality is the Ten Commandments then you're condemned today by that standard. Well, let's look at another one. Let's talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you even agree with this argument that I'm making, but you're still not convinced that it's useless to make excuses. You might admit to falling short on the whole Ten Commandment thing, but that was another age and that was a particularly difficult set of standards. We live in the Christian era, and so now I go by the teachings of the gentle Jesus. And so my standard is the Sermon on the Mount. If that's your position, I think it proves how little you know about the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount doesn't weaken Old Testament standards, it rescues them from moralists like we tend to be because it says that God is not content merely with external adherence to a group of laws, but he requires an inner conformity as well. Our hearts and our minds must also be purified. We've already talked about things like murder and adultery from Matthew chapter 5. That is the Sermon on the Mount, a harsher more difficult standard than the Ten Commandments. But maybe when people are talking about the Sermon on the Mount, they have in mind something different than that section. They may have in mind what we refer to as the Beatitudes. And Jesus begins this sermon with this list in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. I'll just go through very quickly. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they, they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is this what you're thinking of when you think of the Sermon on the Mount? Most moral people see themselves in that description. They think of themselves as meek and merciful and pure and peacemakers. They imagine that they actually thirst for righteousness and that they're even sometimes persecuted because of it. But who really embodies these characteristics? 
Is it anyone you know? I would say hardly. The only person who's ever really embodied them is the one who spoke them. And that's Jesus of Nazareth. I hope you see my point. If Jesus has shown what it means to keep the standards of the Sermon on the Mount, if he is the one who can perfectly keep that standard, what does that say about us? How difficult, how none of us could live up to that standard. So if you appeal to the Sermon on the Mount as the measure by which you're going to feel okay judging others, then you're condemning yourself again. Let's get even simpler. Let's talk about the golden rule. I mean, surely you've learned that if you grew up in elementary school in the United States of America up to, I don't know, it was taught when I was in school. I don't know now what's taught. But it's also a biblical concept. So if you distill the entire Sermon of the Mount down to one principle and make that your standard, maybe this is it. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, it says, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Is this the part whereby you feel okay to judge others and the part by which you would like to be judged? Have you always treated others exactly as the way you would like them to treat you? Have you ever been impatient with people? Angry with them unjustly? Have you ever accused someone falsely? Have you ever taken advantage of another person's weakness? The golden rule accuses you, as it must, if it's going to be the summation of the law, as Jesus taught. So Paul here is teaching that we may not want to acknowledge it, but we're guilty of the same things these other people are, that we want to judge. I'll close with a story I read. A number of years ago, it was actually back in 1967, Thomas Harris wrote a book called I'm Okay, You're Okay. It was sort of a pop psychology book. He was a, a psychiatrist. It's probably still available in the self-improvement aisle at a bookstore. In 1972, it became a bestseller. It sold around 15 million copies and has been translated into multiple languages. It was very popular. I'm okay, you're okay. And about that same time, there's a conference that's held every year called the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Well, that year, <laughs> the title of the conference or the topic was The Depravity of Man. Can you imagine signing up and going and paying to go to a conference that's going to deal the entire time with the depravity of man? That would be sort of depressing. Maybe we need a, a best-selling pop psychology book on the way out. But it was holding its meeting based on that around the same time. And one of the speakers at this was John Gerstner. And I introduced you to him last week. Dr. Gerstner uh, was the professor emeritus of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. He was a Ph.D. graduate of Harvard in 1945. Very well-respected theologian and professor. And he was speaking there at this conference. 
And he used this book as sort of a jumping off point to tell the following story. He says that he and his wife had been in Kashmir and they were returning from a shopping expedition in a little boat that had just pulled up beside a larger junk near the shore. And there was a bump and some water splashed up on them in the boat. And so the owner of the boat got very agitated and gestured for them to get out. Gerstner told how he remembered saying to his wife, see how excitable this fellow is. We get a little water splashed on us and you would think it was a catastrophe of the first order. So the man became more and more agitated. Finally, Gerstner said, it's okay, Kusra, it's okay. And finally, the owner of the boat got so excited that he broke out of the dialect he'd been using, which the Gerstners did not understand. And he just shouted, it's no okay. At this, they sort of got the message and they climbed onto the shore. And the owner then threw his grandchild up to them and climbed out himself. When they turned around, the boat was gone. You see, they had been punctured. The hull of the boat had been punctured and the undertow had swallowed their craft. It was eventually tossed back up to the surface about six boats further on. And if the Gerstners had delayed a moment longer, they would have been swallowed up with it. And that is the message of these early chapters of Romans. And it is that I am not okay and you are not okay. No one is okay. And the sooner we admit that we are not okay and we turn to the one who knows that we are not, but who offers us a way of salvation anyway, the better off we'll be. Denial and excuses will not help us. Jesus does not excuse us. He forgives us. He calls us sinners. In Luke chapter 5, verse 32, he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's two points I want to leave you with. The first is the most important thing in life is to know that Jesus is able to save you from your sins. The second most important thing is to know that you require it. You need it. You are not okay. And no amount of excuse making, no amount of finger pointing at other people, no amount of denial is going to make a difference. Jesus is able to save you from your sin and you require exactly that. Let's pray together.